Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. You turn with me to Isaiah chapter 38. I'm going to need a few extra minutes this morning. I can tell you that right now. It is, um, it's so weird to me. Some weeks, some weeks it's a ton of material and we get through it in 40, 45 minutes. And this week, uh, it just seems like be able to pull it all together. We need a little extra time. We're looking at chapters 38 and 39, Isaiah chapters 38 and 39 this morning. But really, this is part of a larger section, 28 to 39, is, is really one whole unit. As you look at the book of Isaiah, uh, he seems, seems to work in blocks. It's very intentional in the way, the, the central themes that he puts in each of these blocks. And 28 to 39 is elevating this theme of faith toward God. That's really the, the central message here. And we discovered last Sunday that uh, looking at chapters 28 to 39 in kind of a summary form, that they aren't just comprised of oracles of judgment and salvation. It's not just prophetic the prophetic word. There's also um, a number of historical details that are, that are recorded for us in 36 to 39. And these serve as faith builders, we said, for God in every, God's people in every age and in every context. And, and God uses a whole variety of common forms and styles and subject matters to communicate divine truth. He's not limited. God can, he can use a donkey to communicate his truth. He can certainly use different genres uh, in Scripture. And, and so we see him doing that here. The diversity, I think, of Scripture um, is one of the things that makes the, the Bible unique amongst all other religious texts that people cling to. The, in Scripture, you have something like 40 authors writing over the course of thousands of years, uh, spread over a fairly large geographical area in the ancient Near Eastern world, and each writing in their own specific styles, in their own specific historical contexts. And yet, carried along by the Spirit, they all communicate one consistent, inerrant message about the triune God, about man, about sin, the way of salvation and eternal life, which is just a powerful testimony to the, the, the uniqueness of Scripture. Um, every part of Scripture is God-breathed. Every part is infallible, meaning that it is completely trustworthy. Every part is profitable, Paul says, for teaching and reproof, and for correction and training and righteousness, so that you and I would be equipped for every good work. And chapters 36 to 39 are historical narrative, with Isaiah recording who and what and where and when of different events and even how to demonstrate God's character, to help us understand who God is, to help us expose man's sinfulness and, and the condition of man's heart, and ultimately to teach us and instruct us in divine truth. And it's all being done in a way that puts flesh and bones to that. And we see real people in real circumstances um, experiencing real failures and real successes. Uh, and and that, that picture, that narrative, uh, holds us as the reader all the more accountable for what God's teaching. Isaiah could have very well laid out all these things in, in, um, in plain vanilla propositional statements about the importance of faith, the dangers of pride or whatever. But instead, the Spirit has carried him along to reinforce the necessity, absolute necessity of faith by telling a story about how God delivered lowly Judah from the mouth of the mighty Assyrians, as we saw last Sunday. We learned last week through the narrative that our God delights to turn apparent defeats into victories. 
He loves to turn apparent nobodies into somebodies. God's kingdom plan, we said, is moving forward, but it's not moving forward by human ingenuity. It's definitely not moving forward by brute strength or worldly wisdom. God's kingdom plan is advancing in a way that magnifies and glorifies him above all. So we can't expect him to do things according to man's estimation. We said in 701 BC, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, had spent several years at that point of, of chapter 36, he had already spent several years quelling rebellion in his eastern flank in Babylon, and now he has turned his attention to the western flank to consolidate his power in Tyre and Philistia and Egypt and, of course, in Judah. Isaiah 36 and 37, in these chapters that we saw last Sunday, Sennacherib's military pressure has literally come up to the neck of Judah. They are surrounded Um, They have already ravaged some of the cities surrounding Jerusalem. And this individual, this cupbearer, this messenger, delivered an ominous message. And the message was basically this, you have no hope, and so you best to give up now and spare yourselves a lot of suffering and difficulty. Chapter 36 and verse 4, he says, what is this great confidence that you have? to Hezekiah. Your counsel and strength for war are only empty words. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Speaking about the king of Assyria. Behold, you rely on this staff uh, of this crushed reed in, on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. He said, thus is Pharaoh king of Egypt. Later on in verse 14, he says, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria, as if kind of mocking God. Sennacherib was threatening imminent defeat and deportation, just like he'd done to all the surrounding regions. And made good on, and Judah, he says, has no power. That's true. They have no allies. They can't trust Egypt or anyone else to save them. And Rabshakeh would have them believe that they had no God to deliver them, that there was no hope. From, purely, from a purely earthly perspective, it looked uh, difficult, if not impossible. They were surrounded by a superior military force. They had no resources left to purchase allies, and even the allies they had were not dependable. And so what we saw was the beleaguered children of promise basically uh, doomed in, in light of the great king of Assyria marching up to their doorstep. But we said our God delights to turn apparent defeats into victories. He loves to turn nobodies into somebodies, and that's what we saw him do in the text. Historically speaking, in the past, when Israel and Judah's kings were faced with uh, dire situations, they made bad decisions. <laughs> that's what, it's what you do when you're a king in, in Egypt or in, in, in Judah. They made mistakes by trying to maneuver their way out of those situations through alliances. They did it sometimes through spiritual compromise, just taking on false worship. They, maybe these gods will help us. Oftentimes, they just let the people get picked apart because of their weak leadership. But Hezekiah was different. Hezekiah stood firm, and his advisors stood firm, responding with dependence and trust in the Lord. And that's what we saw unfold. There's no rising up in responding in kind. There's no maneuvering. There's no calls to verbal warfare here. There's no panic, even though they understand how serious the situation is. Verse 21 says that they were silent. 
they did not answer him a word, this, this kind of boastful messenger of King Sennacherib. And then, after that, verse 22 says that they went and tore their clothes, uh, which is a sign of, of penitence, a sign of lowliness, of humility, and they brought the message and the news uh, in all of its you know, ugliness and, and uh, direness to the king, Hezekiah. The, ser- the seriousness of the situation was not lost on them. And yet, despite that, they, they responded with faith. They responded with trust that God would answer, uh, answer their prayers and God would su- support them and care for them in their hour of need. And what happens next is really insightful because how Hezekiah responds is really the demonstration of his heart. The king was prayerful, verse 1 of chapter 37. He heard all this. He tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, Again, showing humility, lowliness, and he says he entered the house of the Lord. He, he went to pray. He went to worship God. The king gets this, this terrible news, and he bows low and turns to the Lord. And his words, he calls on Isaiah, and the words that he communicates, we said, are, are words of contrition, they are words of humility, they are words of weakness. And it's not a false humility like his father Ahaz had, who said, oh, I couldn't possibly ask the Lord for a test because he didn't really trust the Lord. No, this is real lowliness. This is genuine contrition from a heart of faith and a dependence upon God. He recognizes, verse 3, his helplessness. He recognized and is genuinely concerned for the Lord's honor. He was, he was looking out for the well-being of God's people as he prays at the end of verse 4, that God would, would do, uh, show c- compassion and pity on a remnant that is left. He messed up and he knew it, but in repentance he trusted the Lord would show pity. And we said when the king's message was brought to Isaiah, God's prophet already had a word ready, ready to encourage, ready to, um, to build up, in verse 7, it says he told Hezekiah God would put a powerful spirit on the, on the king of Assyria. Uh, he would hear, this king would hear a report, whether it was true or not, doesn't matter. He would hear it and believe it, and he would return to his own land, and there he would die by the sword. And this is exactly what transpired. God is not mocked. What a man sows, we said, he reaps. And Assyria sowed arrogance and pride and a lot of blasphemy against God, and they reaped the whirlwind of his judgment. And when, he, when Isaiah gave this message to Hezekiah, he was confident, he could be confident, that the Lord would do this. We said, verse 32, because the zeal of the Lord of hosts would promise to perform this. Verse 35, he says, I will defend this city. God says this, I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and from my servant David's sake. God would honor his word. God would honor his covenant. And that's exactly what we saw him do in verse 36 and 37. What the Lord said he would do through the mouth of the prophet, he did. And the angel of the Lord went out, struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all these were dead. And so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. All came to pass precisely as the word of the Lord had said it would. 
And we said back in chapter 14, in verse 25, God promised that he was going to break Assyria, he says, in my land and trample him on my mountain. And chapter 37 is the unmistakable near-term fulfillment of that prophecy. God is true to his word. The Lord is the king of kings, and we said last week, he alone is worthy of all of our trust. That brings us to where we are this morning in chapter 38 which is related to chapters 36 and 37. And uh, we're looking at another narrative, another set of events, and we can probably put under this heading in chapter 38, uh, we call this, uh, we see Hezekiah presented by Isaiah, devoted to the Lord in praise. We'll call this kind of first part of our outline, devoted to the, Hezekiah is presented devoted to the Lord in praise. We need to make clear, though, that, that 38 and 39, what's, what's takes, recorded for us in these chapters, takes place chronologically before 36 and 37. Um, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 38, it says, In those days Hezekiah became mortally ill. In those days isn't referring to what had just happened in 36 and 37, but is looking back to a period a little bit earlier in Hezekiah's reign. Um, If Hezekiah died, and we're pretty confident that he died in 686 BC, and the scriptures tell us that he reigned for 29 years, if he lived 15 years past the point of the illness that we're going to read about here in chapter 38, that takes us back to about 702 BC, which is a little bit before the events of 36 and 37, which we said happened in 701 BC. We also know that this is happening before uh, 36 and 37, because in verse 6 of chapter 38, God promises deliverance of Jerusalem from the Assyrians. That deliverance is then recorded for us in 36 and 37. So we know that it happened you know, this, this, all the events of 38 and 39 happened before 36 and 37. Normally, though, when we read historical narrative, uh, the events are unfolding sequentially, right? You know, this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. So, so it's a little confusing to us to see things out of order. But Isaiah has a, a larger theological purpose in recording and arranging the events for us in the flow of his book. And so he places them in reverse order. So 38 and 39 happened before 36 and 37. So what is it that took place? Well, it says in those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. In other words, we don't know exactly what the situation was. It's probably some kind of infection. So you get to the end here, they, Isaiah gives him instruction to put something on a wound, a boil, and uh, that that would somehow uh, bring about the recovery. So we don't know exactly what it is, but it's some kind of infection. Maybe it's something that's gone septic. He's mortally ill. It's spreading, and his situation has taken a turn for the worst. But whatever the situation is, it's really not that important, other than the fact that he knew it. Isaiah, Hezekiah knew it. Isaiah knew it. He He was mortally ill. It was in this moment that Isaiah the prophet comes to Hezekiah with a word from the Lord. And it says, And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to Hezekiah and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Isaiah was trained in the surgeon's school of bedside manner. (laughs) Have you ever met a surgeon that was like pleasant after surgery? I've never. 
This isn't the word you want to get from the Lord's prophet, by the way. But it was a true word. It was a necessary word. And it was delivered candidly. It was delivered seriously. Hezekiah was gravely ill, and it was time for him, Isaiah says, it is time for you to get your house in order. What was Hezekiah's response? Look at verse 2. He turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Hezekiah's response is equally candid and serious as he is immediately turning away from Isaiah, essentially telling him, go. And he turns to this face of the wall, presumably to be alone with the Lord and to pray. One of the things that may have been weighing on his heart at this time was the fact that he had, at 702 BC, no heir. You remember... um, Uh, You may recall, as you've read through some of the other portions of Kings and Chronicles, that Manasseh, his son, came to uh, take his place on the throne when he was only 12 years old. And so that would mean at this point he wasn't even born yet. So essentially, Hezekiah has no heir, uh, which means that the Davidic line of kings is somewhat in peril. And so facing imminent death... With no heir apparent to take the throne, uh, Hezekiah, in a moment of desperation and trust, turns to the Lord in prayer. And this is what he says, verse 3, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah, it says, wept bitterly. Interestingly, Hezekiah's prayer doesn't focus on his illness. You know, he's not praying, Lord, heal me. Lord, get me out of this situation. He asks God to remember him. He asks God to remember his past faithfulness to the Lord. And what he's saying there is not so much to extol his good works, but he is just pleading, pleading with God for divine mercy. This is, this, is a, this is the heart of a man who's just pleading for, for mercy. We see other individuals in Scripture in the Old Testament uh, crying out to the Lord with tearful prayer. Uh, Hannah comes to mind in in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verses 7 to 10. She's pleading with God with tears to give her a son. Uh, uh, Later on, this hasn't happened yet, obviously, in the timeline, but later on in Israel's history, as they are under uh, in exile, uh, Esther pleads for Ahasuerus to stop Haman's scheme to eradicate the Jews. And she does that by tearful, you know, basically petition to the king in Esther chapter 8 and verse 3. So it is, it is essentially what we see in verse 3, a plea with God for mercy. Hezekiah, he says, I've walked faithfully with you, Lord. I've walked in the footsteps of my father David. And now he is begging God to show him mercy and favor and to spare his life. And just as quickly as he asks, God responds with an answer. The parallel account that is given to us in uh, 2 Kings tells us Isaiah was literally walking out into the middle court and God stopped him and said, go back. <laughs> That's where detail's not recorded for us here, but he comes back. He comes back in verse 4 and it says, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. 
I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. Isaiah has barely left the room. He's literally walked to the outer court, and God grabs a hold of him and says, you need to go back. And the Spirit of the Lord prompts him to go back with a decisive answer to let Hezekiah know that God was going to do two things. One, he promised he would heal Hezekiah from whatever this, this mortal Ill, illness, this kind of um, uh, you know, terminal illness is. But secondly, he also promised that he would deliver Hezekiah and Jerusalem from the Assyrians, which were coming up to their doorstep. As one commentator said, Hezekiah offers one prayer and he gets two answers, which is just, uh, just how God is. This is a, I think this is an important reminder while it's not the central theme of this text, it is certainly here that our God performs merciful deeds in response to heartfelt prayer. We need to be reminded of that. And, and, and as Paul says in Ephesians 3 verse 20, our God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. And that's what we see him doing here. Hezekiah prays, and he just says, Lord, remember me. Lord, show me mercy. And God's answers are grace on top of grace on top of grace. He's not only going to be delivered personally, he is going to be delivered politically and spiritually and religiously in this context. God's answers outstrip his requests. Now, the question we have to ask here is, does prayer change God? Because, because God said, oh, he's going to, He's going to perish. You need to get your house in order. And then all of a sudden, God changes his mind. Does, is prayer then changing God? And the answer to that, theologically speaking, is not in an ultimate sense. Not ultimately. Because God has ordained all things from eternity past, and he's working those things out according to the counsel of his will. So, so prayer doesn't change things ultimately. However, just as God has ordained the ends, he has also ordained the means to those ends. And the means to those ends is through prayer. That's how his will is going to be accomplished. And here we see that this is what's happening. We see that God has already planned to spare Hezekiah's life, to prolong it by 15 years, and the means by which that gracious extension was to be granted and fulfilled was Hezekiah's prayer his faith-filled prayer. But at the end of the day, as faithful as Hezekiah was, the foundation of answered prayer is not our faithfulness, it is God's faithfulness. We have to be reminded of that. 2 Kings 20 and verse 6, which is the parallel account, adds that God promised to heal Hezekiah, he says, for my sake and for my servant David's sake. So he wasn't doing this because Hezekiah was this awesome spiritual warrior that he needed to feel like he needed to reward. He was doing it for his namesake. God had made promises that David would always have a man who would extend the throne and that his salvation purposes would be accomplished through this son of David. And God was going to keep those promises. And so we don't know what the Lord's will, you and I don't know what the Lord's will is in this situation or that situation. Nevertheless, the scripture says we are to pray without ceasing. So we pray and we plead earnestly and we pray expectantly 
uh, from a heart of faith like Hezekiah did. So in situations like this and other situations that we encounter, we can pray with faith. We can pray with trust. Do we bat a thousand? No, we never do. But we pray nonetheless. Hezekiah didn't know what the Lord would do, but he pleaded and the Lord answered. He even goes on, God even goes on a step further and gives, not only does he give him this promise, this kind of twofold promise, I'm going to heal you and deliver you. He goes a step further and gives Hezekiah a sign to confirm that he's going to do all that he has promised to do. You look in verse 7 uh, and the beginning part of verse 8, it says, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has spoken. Behold, I will cause the shadow of the stairway, which is kind of functioning like a, like a sundial. I will cause the shadow on the stairway, which has gone down with the sun on the stairway to Ahaz, to go back 10 steps. So the sun's shadow then went back 10 steps on the stairway on which it had gone down. Second Kings tells us, actually, kind of fills in the narrative a little bit. I, Isaiah gave Hezekiah a choice. He said, the Lord will give you a sign. You can choose, you can have the shadow go forward or you can have it go backward. Which do you want? And uh, here he chose, uh, he says he chose to have it go backwards because he says, well, shadow's always going to go forward. I want to see it do something I wouldn't expect. I want to see it go backwards. And that's what he did. That's what he did. How God made the sun move backwards, we cannot be sure. Okay, we, we can't be sure how that works. That God made the shadow move backwards, we can be sure, because the scriptures are truthful and trustworthy. The creator of time is the master of time, and he can do whatever he wants. He had already done it before. In Joshua chapter 10, God extended the day so that Israel could win the victory. Joshua chapter 10, 12 to 14 tells us that. So he did it once, he can certainly do it again. But again, Hezekiah's acceptance and trust in God stands here in stark contrast to his father, Ahaz. Because you remember back in, eight, in chapter 7, when Syria and Ephraim were threatening um, Judah, Isaiah came to his father, Ahaz, and said, ask the Lord for a sign. He's like, ah, I couldn't possibly ask the Lord for a sign. We said that was actually a heart of disbelief because he'd already made up his mind what he was going to do. And so Hezekiah stands where his father stood at this crisis, and he's faced with a similar choice. Do I trust God and, have my, you know, and will I be established, or will I doubt God and be cast aside? And Hezekiah, we see here, remained devoted to the Lord. And of course, we see that he is established, because verse 8 says, The sun's shadow went back ten steps on the stairway on which it had gone. God had made his, you know, he kind of secured his promise with a, with a double blessing. Not only did he give the word, which is absolutely trustworthy, he gave him a sign on top of it. Not only is he established, but Kings and Chronicles tell us he will go on to have a son. That son, Manasseh, would prolong the house of David. He becomes then the next link in the chain and the fulfillment of the Lord's covenant. So, so all of this unfolds because of Hezekiah's response of faith. Now, in verses 9 to verse 20, the Lord uh, answered a prayer, provokes Hezekiah to basically write a psalm, <laughs> as one does when good things happen, right? He just cranked out a psalm. 
And in verses 10 to 14, he describes his hopeless situation where he was. You know, he was, he was in the middle of his life and God was going to deprive him of, of days and, and he's just crying out to the Lord and oppressed. In verses 15 to 20, we see him describe the Lord's gracious favor. These are the words, as you read through them, we're not going to go through it all. You read through this, this psalm from verses 10 to 20 of a man who's under a sentence of death and he has seen the Lord pluck him out of the grave. Notice, having been made a recipient of God's mercy and grace, verse 15, he says, I will uh, wander about all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. The, uh, this is really a confusing, I think, translation. What he means, to, what it really is meant to say is he will walk humbly all of his years on account of this trial. That's the heart of what he's getting at. So he will, he will be humble in heart. He will, verse 19, give thanks to God. He will testify of the Lord's faithfulness to the next generation. A father tells his sons about your faithfulness, Lord, verse 19. He worships. He says, I will rep- I, we will play my song on string instruments all the days of our life at the house of the Lord. In other words, all of Hezekiah's righteous works before God flow out from faith in God and God's grace in his life, not the other way around. And it's the same with us. Our righteousness is the overflow of faith toward Christ and his abundant grace poured out in our lives. God doesn't pour out his saving grace into our lives as some kind of a reward for our good works. We don't deserve anything. Even our righteous deeds, Isaiah will say, are filthy garments. It is from faith that we're established and through faith that we can echo with Hezekiah as he does in verse 20, the Lord will surely save me. So we see in this beginning section in chapter 38, we see Isaiah devoted to the Lord in praise. But no sooner does Hezekiah emerge from death's door singing God's praises that his faith is put to the test. Isaiah had presented Isaiah, has presented Hezekiah as devoted to the Lord in praise in chapter 38, but in chapter 39 he will present him defecting from the Lord in pride. Verse 1, at that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Now, not long after Hezekiah is healed, this diplomatic envoy arrives in Jerusalem from the region of Babylon. Now, Babylon is not its own thing at this point. They are under, under Assyria. And they have come, this envoy has come with letters and gifts. Now, Merodach Baladan was the local ruler of Babylon and had been for some time under the previous administration, if you want to call it that, of um, Assyria. Sargon was king before Sennacherib. Sargon reigned from 722 to 705. And during that time, Merodach Baladan was, was the king in Assyria. Uh, excuse me, of, of Babylon. So, but Sargon dies in 705 and Sennacherib takes over and ascends to the throne. And it was at that time that he tried to rebel again for a second time and to 
push for Babylonian independence. In other, in other words, they are trying to get out from underneath the thumb of Assyria. And so this trip to Jerusalem, along with the letters and the gifts that this envoy brings, were really a, a very thinly veiled attempt to secure allies on the Western Front. Babylon is, is planning to rebel against the Assyrians, and he wants Judah to help him do it. Hezekiah, at this point, is about to be tested. His faith is going to be tested. Will he trust the promises of God, or will he fall captive to the power of a man? And verse 2 reveals to us that he became captivated by man's power. Look at verse 2. He says, Hezekiah was pleased and showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and his whole armory and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show him. To say the least, Hezekiah was smitten. <laughs> he was completely taken in. In fact, the, the, the wording of verse 2 is, says he, was, he rejoiced over them, literally. The, the king of little old Judah had the king of Babylon eating out of his hand. Pride of place washed over his heart like a tsunami wave. This was not a cursory inspection. This was a leisurely and thorough showing off of everything that God had blessed him with. Hezekiah had fallen for one of the oldest tricks in the book. Flattery. Flattery. Somebody prominent wanted something from him and came bearing gifts and words of encouragement and he got sucked in by it. And of course, if he'd remembered the wisdom of Solomon, he would have been able to see right through that. Proverbs 26 and verse 28 says, A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Or Proverbs 29 and verse 5, A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. Flattery is... is is such a temptation, which is a good reminder for us as well, I think, that insincere praise is really two things. One is just, it's nothing more than deceitful words dressed up in pretty clothing. The flattery, insincere praise, is nothing more than, um, than deceitful words dressed up in pretty clothing. So we need to understand that it's, it's basically to lie. But also, temptation, uh, uh, flattery is a temptation to poor judgment. It, it bends our perception. And so it makes us vulnerable to, uh, to making unsound decisions. And that's exactly what happens here. Merodach Ballad and this individual had ulterior motives, and Hezekiah let his pride get the best of him in this situation, showing off all his riches, all that God had graciously entrusted to him, and he did that to a foreign adversary. I mean, this isn't bright. Well, as we see in the text, God wastes no time confronting Hezekiah's sin. Verse 3, then, Hezekiah, I mean, then Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. His words 
are just dripping with, with pride and, and, and exaltation. These people came here all the way from Babylon to see me and to see all that we have, you know? He wants me as an ally. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the tenor of these words. He's not, he's not even hiding it. He's not even trying to um, kind of conceal his, his, his arrogance, his excitement, his, his joy over, over having Babylon, you know, come to him. And Isaiah's response is, is decisive and it is, is ominous. Look at verse 5. He says, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away and they will become officials, literally eunuchs, in the palace of the king of Babylon. Isaiah's prediction is dire. The house of David will be in danger. God has already promised that Assyria won't capture Jerusalem, but that does not mean that another adversary can emerge who will eventually accomplish what Assyria could not. And Isaiah's message is simply this. You want to commit all you have to Babylon, then all you have will go to Babylon. That's the message. You want to commit all you have into Babylon's hands, if that's where you're going to put your trust, then all you have will go there. Isaiah's words remind us of Paul in Romans 6 and verse 16. He says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? The logic is simple. You're a slave of the one you bow down to. And Hezekiah, in his pride, defected from his devotion to the Lord and put it foolishly in a man. And Isaiah says, if that's who your trust is in, then that's who you'll serve. Hezekiah's response in verse 8 is disappointing, to say the least. Notice what he says here. In verse 8 he says, And Hezekiah said, to Isaiah, the word of the Lord, which you have spoken, is good. For he thought, for there will be peace and truth in my days. Hezekiah, in chapter 38, when he heard the Lord's word of judgment, of imminent death, he turned to God in tearful prayer. Here, he turns to the situation with selfish indifference. He basically shrugs his shoulders, shrugs his shoulders and says, Somehow, some way, we don't know how he communicated this, but he thought at least or said, I'm glad I don't have to deal with the consequences of my own stupidity. And that's essentially what he's saying. This isn't going to blow up in my face during my lifetime, so whoo, <laughs> dodged a bullet there. This is what happens when faith, I mean, when works replace faith, when man replaces God, when pride replaces humility. It, it leads to spiritual indifference. And our hearts can do this as well. They, they can just turn on a dime. That's what I think is so, um, so compelling about the narrative. One minute, Hezekiah is on top of the world, praising God, writing psalms, with he, you know, praising God with the heavenly host. And the next minute, he's acting like all the faithless kings who've come before him. 
shrugging his shoulders saying, well, at least I don't have to deal with this. It's a reminder, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So Isaiah has shown, shown us Hezekiah devoted to the Lord in praise in chapter 38. He's shown him defecting from the Lord in pride in chapter 39. Thirdly, he leaves us, Isaiah does, dependent upon the Lord in a promise. Despite this kind of disappointing episode that's recorded in chapter 39 of Hezekiah's reign, the verdict on his life was generally positive. Was generally positive. Second Chronicles 32, uh, which is a parallel account, speaks of the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his deeds of devotion written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So in 2 Kings chapter 18 of Hezekiah says, he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him. So the, the verdict over Hezekiah's life was generally positive, but as commendable as Hezekiah's faithful life was, nevertheless, he was still a man. He's still a man, which means he's mortal, which means, and we see here, he is fallible. And interestingly, Isaiah ends in chapter 39, not with the Davidic king triumphant in victory, but what? Bumbling and stumbling with all the same temptations common to all of us. Selfishness, pride, foolishness. In the end, exile for Judah must come because God's people reflect the king's inconsistency to trust in God alone. Isaiah wants us to know in the way that he crafts this, that the final salvation that we will experience will never be realized through Hezekiah or any other earthly ruler. In the end, it is the Lord who is the king of kings, and it is the Lord who is worthy of all of our trust. He leaves the reader dependent on the Lord's promise, the promise of Messiah. And so Isaiah concludes chapter 39 the way he does, intentionally to direct our eyes in chapters 40 to 66 toward the Lord's servant. Interesting, from this point on in, in, in the book of Isaiah, there's no longer any real interest in the Davidic kingship. All eyes fall on the heavenly king. All eyes fall on the Lord's servant and the blessings and the faithfulness that he will usher in. And that, that heavenly king facing far greater pressures than Ahaz ever did or Hezekiah ever did, like we see that in, in, under him, the Lord's promises are equally trustworthy. The Lord's servant, this anointed one, will walk, will see in perfect obedience to his heavenly father. He will pay the ultimate redemption price for his people. And God's kingdom program is brought to completion through him. And so we noted at the outset that 38 and 39 come, uh, take place. The events of 38 and 39 take place before 36 and 37. And we never really answered the question, Why? Why? Why does Isaiah put historical narrative in a non-historical order? And I want you to notice how chapter 37 ends. Go back to 37 for a second. What happens at the end of 37? 
It came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, this is Sennacherib, killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. What happens here at the end of 37? The faithless king of Assyria goes up to the temple of his god, and what? He dies. But when you come to chapter 38, the faithful king of Judah, Hezekiah, goes up to the temple of the true God and lives. For the rebellious king, the visit to the temple meant death. For the humble king, the visit to the temple was accompanied with praise to the living God for mercy and grace. Now, it's hard to be dogmatic on this, but if we're correct to assume that the primary purpose of this whole section, 28 to 39, is to elevate the preeminence of faith, toward God, then what better way to do that than to show the what and the who and the where and the when and the how and the why of God's trustworthiness through the lens of historical events? And what better way to highlight the drastically different outcomes that flow downstream from self-sufficiency, brute strength, and worldly wisdom on the one hand, and God-dependence, humility, and faith on the other hand? What better way to highlight the differences to these two approaches in life than to put them side by side? Sennacherib exalted himself and the Lord cut him down. Hezekiah stood firm in his faith in the Lord's word and the Lord caused him to stand firm. Hezekiah turned to the Lord in prayer and his life was spared and prolonged. Hezekiah was filled with pride and God's people go into exile. This is the message of the whole section laid out for us in narrative. In chapter uh, 30, in verse 15, God says, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. And then, but then he ends verse 15 by saying, But you, he says, But you were not willing. Speaking of, of Judah. He says, you said, no, we will flee on horses. He says, you will flee. We will ride on swift horses. And God says, those who pursue you shall be swift. This is it. This is the message of the whole section. Faith or no faith. Trust God or don't trust God. And everywhere in the narrative, we see individuals walking by faith. We see the Lord's compassion, his grace and mercy poured out. And everywhere we see hearts walking in rebellion or pride or self-sufficiency is the Lord's judgment, his chastening, and his discipline. I believe Isaiah intends for us to pick up that message as we read the narrative. Humble faith in the Lord leads to life, sometimes temporarily, always eternally. And prideful rebellion against the Lord brings death and chastening, sometimes temporarily, and if we persist in that in an unbroken pattern, always eternally. But unlike Isaiah in his original audience, we don't have to wonder about who the Lord's servant is, this heavenly king, and who he will be. As we end in verse 39, the reader is wondering who, who's going to save us? Who, who is this one who will come? But we know who that is. He has come. And 2,000 years ago, he read Isaiah's description of Messiah and proclaimed, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
And he backed up that messianic claim by unmistakable miraculous power, by a spotless life, by a vicarious death, by a victorious resurrection from the grave. And he, the message here is extending forgiveness and reconciliation and peace with God to all who humble themselves and trust in him in simple childlike faith. And so we're left with a choice. Do we trust him and believe in him and walk with him in faith or do we trust in ourselves, look to our own efforts, look to our own power? The obvious answer from the text is we look to the Lord. Come back to Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 9. I mean, really, it's, it's kind of the anchor point for so many of the interactions. He says, Isaiah tells Ahaz, if you will not believe, you surely will not stand. And so we have a choice. I pray that you have made that commitment to the Lord, that you are trusting him. And understand that our hearts are fickle, right? The one minute we're, we're praising God, we're glorifying him. The next minute we're giving into temptation. But the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And as we turn to him in repentance and continue in the faith, he keeps us, he sustains us, and we can trust him. As we get into chapters 40 to 66, the whole, the whole tone of everything shifts from one of condemnation and confrontation to one of, of consolation and comfort and hope. And that's what we're going to see as we turn to 40 and uh, I think 40 to 42 next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these um, just incredible um, alignment of, of stories and how you put them together through the Spirit's guidance. Lord, in their final form, we see, we see Isaiah... Uh, taking things that are out of order and placing them in a different order such that we would see these great themes of faith and trust and uh, pride and foolishness. Lord, help us to be the kind of people who are like Hezekiah in his, in his moments of strength, looking to you, praying, uh, pouring out our hearts before you, walking faithfully. We want the legacy of our lives to be the legacy of his life, keeping the commandments, trusting in you, uh, persevering in faith. We are not perfect, Lord, and we know that. We fall desperately short. Um, but in repentance and rest, we know that there is life. Pray, Lord, that you would draw hearts to you this morning and, stead and, and, and steady, Lord, those whose knees are wobbling. We thank you that you've given us this great hope. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information, or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.